Hello, and welcome back to Crypto Sapiens. I am your host, Humpty Calderon. And today, we are chatting with Michael McGinnis, co-founder of GM.xyz. In our conversation, we discuss the different schools of thought on building decentralized social platforms, protocols versus apps. We also talk about how we can help the society at large learn and care about the value of decentralization. We also talk about decentralized social and the ways that it improves connections in Web3 and how we govern communities. There has been a lot of attention given recently to decentralized social platforms, and much of this is accelerated by the acquisition of Twitter. This conversation highlights some of the reasons why we're having these conversations, as well as featuring how decentralized social can improve the way that we make connections, find value alignment within communities, share content, and retain the value of the work that we're putting into these social platforms. There's a lot to unpack here, so without further ado, let's get started. Yeah, so um, my name is Mike McGinnis. Um, so I, I, before Web3, it's fu funny enough, I actually, I, I had two different, I worked in two different industries. First, I worked as a hedge fund analyst um, at a high yield, uh, long short high yield hedge fund. Um, so that's actually where I got exposed to Bitcoin, right? Just from a macroeconomics uh, perspective, I thought the store value use case was pretty interesting. I Googled what's the best book on Bitcoin to learn more about it. I came at, uh, across the Bitcoin standard, read that. And I was like pretty uh, all in on Bitcoin um, from like, I, I think that was in like early 2018. Um, and uh, I was like, kind of like, it pains me to say this, like a bit of a Bitcoin maxi. Uh, but um, uh, then I left my hedge fund job, went to work as a software engineer at this company called Common Stock, which is based out in San Francisco. It's kind of like Twitter, but you link your brokerage account. So it's uh, investing social app. Um, so worked as a software engineer there. And um, it was still very like Web2 stock focused. And I was uh, going more and more down the Ethereum rabbit hole and just got super excited. And um, almost like since I started at Comstock, I was like thinking about like ways to build in the space and what does the space really need and like the problems that you could solve with it. Um, and I got really excited about this idea of decentralized social media, um, right? Like if you think about social media, it's something that touches pretty much every person in the world. And you have a handful of large tech companies that own all the world's data. Um, and they get to censor what people see and do not see. Um, it stifles innovation because people, if you have a different view for a feed algorithm for Twitter, for example, you can't really express that view, um, right? Like unless you build Twitter from scratch, which is really, really hard to do. Actually building the Twitter app isn't that hard. Like a lot of really smart people could build them like a couple months. Um, so, uh, I thought that was a really interesting problem to go after. And there was a couple of other solutions in the space, but I kind of disagreed with their approach. Um, a, lot, a lot of people are starting like protocol first or building their own L1 and saying, hey, we'll create this centralized, uh, this decentralized social media protocol and then everybody build on top of us. Uh, I think the problem with that is that it's really hard to build on decentralized architecture. Um, right, like we're kind of in the 1960s of decentralized architecture. It just hasn't benefited from the same 50 plus years of investment that Web2 architecture has benefited from. Uh, so my view was like, hey, like speed, you're probably your speed and the number of iteration cycles you have are probably your biggest advantage as a startup and trying to compete against these incumbents. It makes sense to start out centralized first and then progressively decentralized over time. Right, because if you don't build something useful, then decentralization doesn't really matter, in in my view. 
And then it's only once you build something useful that you want to decentralize the data layer so that um, you can't, for example, like Twitter back before 2012 used to have open APIs and a bunch of people built on top of those APIs. And then all of a sudden when Twitter started eating into Twitter's ad revenue, they pulled out the rug from underneath these developers that were building on top of them. So, right, like that's where decentralization can be u- uh, useful because it allows you to make these kind of credible commitments that, hey, like, right, like the Chris Dixon phrase, instead of don't be evil, it's can't be evil, right? Like you can't change it. And um, people have strong guarantees when they're building on top of you. So I thought that was really interesting. I uh, uh, quit my job in September of last year with my brother, who's also a software engineer. We were kind of like talking about this idea for months. And normally I have a million ideas and he's like a little more measured and like reserved and thoughtful. (laughs) And he's like, this one's actually a good idea. Let's do it. Um, We quit our jobs in September of last year and we've kind of been off to the races since. I want to start from this idea of like your first exposure to any decentralized system. And it sounds like that was Bitcoin. Um, You called yourself a maximalist. What changed, right? Like, because I think, first of all, I'll agree with you in that Bitcoin is that, tends to be that introduction to Web3 crypto for a lot of people. That's personally how I discovered it, right? I discovered Bitcoin before I heard about anything else, before I heard about Ethereum, before I heard about like all the other like crypto projects that were happening out there. That was my gateway. And of course, soon after discovering, uh, you know, going into the rabbit hole through local meetups, uh, going on Reddit, on crypto Twitter, I learned there was a much wider ecosystem. But I wonder for you, what changed from, you know, become being a maximalist to everything else that you are today? Yeah. And I, I just want to clarify, I wasn't like a very harsh maximalist. Like I was very open to other people building cool th- and interesting things. I was just like, I don't really understand those use cases right now, but I understand Bitcoin, um, right? Like it's very simple, the store value use case and why that's necessary in today's world of central banks kind of printing money. Um, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and like the properties of money and kind of like uh, Bitcoin's kind of saleability and like um, uh, permissionlessness was uh, very interesting. Um, What changed was I have a really smart friend who told me, he's like, you got to look into Ethereum, Uh, just buy a little bit. And I was like, okay, so I bought a little bit. And then like, once you buy something, (laughs) even if it's just a little bit, you start paying more attention. It's like, oh, what's going on here? What's going on here? And then um, I think when it really clicked uh, was I listened to Justin Drake's uh, Ultrasound Money podcast in like March of 2021. Um, and up until that point, I'd been listening a lot, right? Like by that time, I was already listening to Bankless and trying to learn more about um, Ethereum and um, kind of all these other non-Bitcoin uh, cryptocurrencies. And the way Justin Drake put it uh, with kind of the development, this was before EIP 1559. Um, the transition of proof of stake and how it was kind of going to make uh, uh, Ethereum like a superior form of money to Bitcoin. Um, and I was like, within a week of that, I like sold half my Bitcoin and just put it all into Ethereum. And then I actually wrote an essay. Um, so I wrote this essay called Why ETH Will Win Store of Value um, that like helped me organize my thoughts. So, and I ultimately, right, like if you think about it, Ethereum, and this is solely money, like, right, like, from a money perspective, not like kind of all the cool things you could accomplish with Ethereum. And it's like, it's A, it's more scarce after EIP 1559 and um, the transition to proof of stake. I mean, currently it's all, I mean, 
uh, on-chain activities and transaction fees are pretty low right now. And it's still more scarce than Bitcoin in terms of a lower inflation rate than Bitcoin. And then also it made sense is more secure. Um, because when you think about Bitcoin, right, they have this issue where the block subsidies having every four years and transaction fees aren't growing because there's nothing being built on top of it. Right. So you run into the security issue where kind of security spend for Bitcoin scales linear, like linearly. Right. Whereas Ethereum, uh, the security spend because of proof of stake will always be in proportion to the market value of the network. Right. So um, I think Justin Drake did the math and it was like roughly like 10 with proof of stake, like the cost to attack the network would be roughly like 10% of, you'd have to acquire 10% of the supply, right? So if Ethereum has a hundred billion dollar market cap, you'd have to spend $10 billion, um, right? Like, and like right now people say, oh, Bitcoin's fine because it's X billion dollars um, to attack it. But like once it, and Vitalik made this great point on a subreddit, he's like, once Ethereum or Bitcoin, if it becomes a $10 trillion asset, the um, people you have to protect against are, larger and like larger threats, right? So um, it, it, the, the security aspect made sense to me. And then like the real yield as well from proof of stake, the ability to kind of have a four, was it like 4% or maybe it's like 6% after the merge, um, risk-free yield um, is really compelling. And um, it creates this real yield dynamic. And then there's organic demand. And I kind of compared it to how the petrodollar system cemented the US dollar as the global reserve asset. You could see something similar uh, developing around that where people need to pay for decentralized compute and you pay for that with ETH. So I think, thank you so much for that description. I think that's been wonderful. I think what you've proven is you definitely have put in a lot of thought into this and your background uh, you know, in, 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 in markets, right? And being able to apply this type of thinking both to decentralized money. How does someone with that background, with that level of understanding, think about social, decentralized social. Like, what is the transition? Were you building something in the social space? Or was this just something that you saw as a user of like social applications saying, this is a problem. And I understand the technology behind uh, decentralized technology. I'm going to merge the two. Yeah, well, so A, I did actually work at a consumer social app before this as a software engineer. So at Common Stock, I learned a lot about kind of building a social network and building community and stuff like that. Um, and kind of like the technical architecture behind that um, to a lesser extent. But um, uh, I think it really clicked when, um, right, so I was trying to, right. So once I went all in on Ethereum, I was trying to learn more about the potential use cases, right? And there's actually, you have DeFi, you have NFTs. And the one I, um, I, I think those are really cool, but like, they'll never, like, it's hard to see DeFi. I, I think a lot of DeFi stuff will be abstracted away um, and used kind of behind the scenes by like larger institutions um, that uh, it's, it's, it's tough to see my parents using like Uniswap or uh, Compound or Aave, right? Um, and then like NFTs expand a bit beyond that. And then I was kind of like wondering what's, uh, what else can this technology be used for? Used for? And then um, I, I forget where I first heard it, but I, I think it was Balaji was talking about, um, right, like if you kind of have this source of truth and kind of this permissionless data layer, um, how that allows for kind of permissionless innovation on top of that. And I thought that was a really powerful idea, right? Like it's very uh, clear uh, how these kind of data monopolies are affecting the public discourse. Um, it's very clear how they're stifling innovation, right? Because it's very hard, like... Right, like if you think about it, in the last uh, 
I don't know, 20 or so years, there's hundreds of social media startups every year. And um, maybe like 10 have, <laughs> have had a pretty big impact, right? So there, ideally, there should be a lot of really, just because this is something that touches the entire world, there should be a lot of teams like experimenting with different ideas, like on everything from censorship and moderation, um, right? Like uh, all the way to different feed algorithms and kind of making use of new primitives, right? Like, for example, Discord walked back their uh, Ethereum wallet integration, right? Like, and if somebody wanted to like build that, right? Like, and there's ways around it, right? You can use Collablet and stuff like that through their bots. But like, it's very hard to build a crypto native version of Discord. I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do right now. Um, so I, I thought it was a super massive problem. And it made sense why crypto would be useful there. I, I think a lot of times people will talk about use cases that like may exist in the future, but it's very fuzzy of how it'll work, particularly around like real world assets, right? Like put real estate on the blockchain. And it's like, okay, there's like a lot that goes into that, right? Like, right, like you kind of need legal recourse and um, a lot of interaction with the uh, real, real world, the physical world. Um, and it's unclear how uh, blockchains work there unless everybody views it as sovereign. So maybe the, those cases will come eventually, but social media is something that lives in the digital realm and it's a massive problem and it makes sense why a permissionless data layer would help a lot there. Yeah, so it sounds like everything from your, you know, your background, um, well, first of all, understanding really the power behind Ethereum and understanding the what was broken in Web2 Social really drove you and your brother to start up GM.xyz. There's something else that you said at the very beginning of this conversation that I want to also see if we can explore a bit before we really dive into the nuts and bolts of GM.xyz, and that is the comparison to other social projects that are starting at the protocol layer and how building on top of decentralized architecture is hard. There's one thing that I've seen other people talking about, and I, I tend to agree and that is, we also tend to focus a lot at the like protocol level of development and not so much at the application level of, of, of development. And it is at the application layer that we uh, can increase demand and adoption for the technology because people don't need to know how something works, right? Decentralization is, is a means, not an end, as I think I've heard other people saying as well. What are you, I mean, I, maybe describe a little bit more about your thoughts on kind of building these social platforms from a protocol perspective and how building at the application layer is better for you know the ability to onboard people to use this application or maybe even for other applications to collab with with what you're building at gm.xyz so my brother and I talk about this a lot i personally don't think the majority of the world cares about decentralization or like privacy and right, like they don't, you don't really care about these things until you kind of need them, right? But like we care about them. So it's kind of like, how do you, right? Like this is something that's good for society. How do you get everybody to kind of adopt these things? And like the answer, if you want to build more than a niche uh, social network for only people who are fanatical about decentralization is you have to solve real problems and build something that's hopefully 10x better than the current solutions. Um, and that's where we started with GM. So our view was, if you don't build something useful, it, decentralization doesn't matter. So let's solve a real problem. And right now, there's a massive problem that a lot of Web3 communities are wildly underserved uh, by Discord, right? Like Discord is kind of the status quo. But if you think about Discord, 
um, it's really kind of a gaming uh, chat platform that was never intended to be used by a thousand plus person NFT communities or DAOs, right? Like, so a hundred people talking over each other in a Discord channel is a nightmare, right? Because everything's in chronological order. It's not sorted. There's no signal. Like if you're in 50 Discord servers and each one has 20 channels, that's a thousand places that you have to click every day just to get caught up on all of your communities. And it was just never kind of built uh, for what it's being used for today. So we saw that as a problem that we could start with and solve. Um, so our goal and the way we're thinking about it is let's solve a real problem for people and um, build the absolute best home for Web3 communities. Um, and then once you do that, right now there's kind of like millions of people in these Web3 communities, right? So if you could get millions of people to kind of bootstrap the network, then you could start building more uh, broadcast use cases, right? So think like Twitter or Reddit. We're not trying to compete with Twitter or Reddit right now because um, if you post something on GM you versus Twitter or Reddit, you'll o always get more likes and responses from Twitter or Reddit just because we're way smaller than them. Um, but what we can do is we can build a scalable communication platform that is Web3 native. It builds in things like token gating and reputation systems and governance voting and stuff like that and all the things these communities need um, in a very intuitive and easy to use way that's easy uh, to stay on top of. Um, and then, um, so that's our goal. And then eventually though, once you have millions of people on there, you can start building those broadcast use cases. And then, right, like we kind of start putting our data on chain and decentralizing it and making it permissionless for anybody to build a client on top of us. Hopefully open, open source our, our clients and let encourage people to fork us because all we really care about is growing that under, underlying data layer. And then people could fork our web app, our React Native app and build apps of their own for different use cases. So like, let's just say you don't really care about the community uh, abstraction. You, you care more about the Twitter use case. You can like not have communities at all on your app and only just following people and posting to each other and build a Twitter style use case. Um, so that's how we're thinking about it. And um, then we want, right, so basically build something useful, uh, decentralize uh, the data layer, and then decentralize the governance layer um, as well. So that's kind of our three-step process. So maybe describe a little bit about those processes themselves. So you're talking about decentralizing the data layer. Compare that for us to something like Twitter or Discord and how you're able to kind of build something different powered by, you know, decentralized technology. And how, why is that important? Um, yeah, so right, like, um, so I know Twitter and Discord have some API endpoints that are open, but you can't go access Twitter's database, right, and build a Twitter, uh, a Twitter application yourself that's just as good as Twitter um, using their data. Um, so that, so what we want to do is make it permissionless to build on top of us, to read and write to that underlying data layer and ha not have us kind of control that. Um, so that's where I think the value is, um, kind of like, so the best example would honestly be Twitter prior to 2012, when there's all these different types of Twitter applications, um, right? And everybody had access to the underlying data layer and they built all these cool use cases. And that's how you had a ton of innovation. Like I'm pretty sure quote tweets um, were in invented by a third party client as well as like replies and um, stuff that Twitter didn't think of, right? Like some entrepreneur who um, was building for a select group of users thought of that. Um, and that's kind of like the world we want to facilitate. And we think decentral, right? Like what decentralizing does is it allows us to make that hard commitment that, hey, we're right, like you can build on top of us and we're not going to pull the rug out from under you. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. Um, so you, we were talking about 
Discord also a little bit. And in terms of the current use of that application for uh, communities to come together and uh, also not just to communicate, but also maybe to even govern themselves, right? We do see a lot of like this soft governance happening uh, at the Discord level. And you were talking about how like currently, while there is no native way to kind of make sense of that, there are tools like Collabland that may allow you to kind of bridge some of that data over and you know create some meaningful um, you know uh, in, interactions with that data. How would someone do something differently with like GM.xyz? Yeah, so in GM, currently everybody signs in with a wallet. So everybody has a wallet linked to their account. And that enables us to do cool things, right? Where you don't have to stitch this third-party bot that people have to click on and go attach their wallets to. Um, it just happens automatically. So you just, for your community, if you wanted to token gate it by your NFT project, you just paste the contract address in there, how many um, you need to have a certain role in your community. And then you can use that role to permission access to certain channels and uh, like voting rights and stuff like that. So um, it's just native to the platform and people don't have to like link their wallet externally, which is generally like not a great security practice. Um, and then also, um, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of kind of soft consensus being reached on Discord via poll, or it's also a nightmare for a lot of community managers. Because if you look at the way the governance pro process works today, it's like, hey, we have to, um, right? Like I just submitted a proposal on Discourse Right. And then they paste it in Discord and they, it's like herding cats to go, Hey, go comment on this and now go like vote on this. And then discourse isn't web three native. So it's not token weighted when you vote. So, uh, you're running into issues there where your, uh, discourse voting isn't matching up with your snapshot voting. And there's a ton of issues there of just not being web three native and not having this, uh, these particular communities in mind when you're building the platform. Um, so those are a few of the problems we want to solve. Yeah, that's that's very good. You know, there's there's also these conversations happening around identity, and I know one of the challenges that's commonly discussed uh, when it comes to Web two social is that, or even outside of Web two social, just Web two platforms in general, is that any identity that you create on these platforms are not self sovereign, right? So they're owned by these platforms. So any identity you create on the Facebook platform is owned by Facebook. Any identity you create on Google is owned by Google. Any data associated to that obviously is also owned by these uh, organizations. What is like what are some of the benefits? And I'm and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts right as someone who's developing a social platform that is very much built on top of this decentralized technology. What are your thoughts about the ability for people to join a platform like gm.xyz? and generate an identity that may be composable, that functions outside of that platform? Like, what's the value to that? Yeah, so, okay, two things on identity. First, on composability, and I, I think composability is one of the most under-discussed aspects of Web3. I think it's going to be so important. And things that we want to enable is kind of putting your community reputation on chain, right? So if you think about it, right, there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work in these Discord communities, and they're getting no credit for that, right? Like, it'd be nice to have something similar to Reddit Karma, but just for your community, where people have points. And there's a lot of cool and interesting projects going after this and trying to put reputation on uh, chain. Uh, source credit is one that I know um, has attempted this. Um, but... Uh, yeah. So, right. Like if you have that community reputation on chain, it becomes really useful because you can use it across the web, 
right? So if you go into, I don't know, your personal, right? Like some website, right? You do a giveaway. Only people who have X reputation within our community um, will be eligible for this giveaway. Um, you can use it. You can imagine people baking these identities into things like lending platforms and right, like unsecured lending, which is a big problem that nobody that like a lot of people are trying to address right now. Um, so yeah, I think that composability is huge to be able to kind of take where your wallet address is really kind of like your username or your your name and you use it across all these uh, apps in the crypto ecosystem. So I think that's like the first part of identity. And then the second part, which is more Web2 focused, but I think it's really important, particularly as it relates to Discord. On GM, you have a rich identity. So what I mean by that is you have followers, you have post history, you have your NFT collection, um, and it's really useful for safety. Um, so if you think about Discord, um, all you have to go off of is basically a picture and a bio um, that people can kind of change to whatever they want. They can impersonate all these types of people um, or like these community moderators and DM people and scam people. And it's become a massive problem. I mean, I personally just have all my Discord, uh, my Discord DMs turned off and like all my servers on mute just because spam has become um, such a massive problem. But with rich identity, you, you can make more informed decisions around things like, oh, this person uh, sent me a link. <laughs> Um, and then you could, there's a big difference between somebody who has like zero followers and zero posts and then somebody who has 2000 followers and a rich post history and like all these great NFT collections. Um, and it's really helpful to have this in terms of also, it also, it's also helpful for connecting with other people, right? Because you can see like, oh, you're really interested in this subject too. Um, or you have this and you're, you're a holder of this NFT or token as well. Um, and it can help facilitate that connection as well. So yeah, those are the two composability and kind of like this rich identity, I think are, um, things that we're really focused on at GM. Yeah, I like that. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about uh, and that I've shared with other projects that are uh, building social platforms, and I'll share it with you, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. One thing that I think Web3 identities, right, these rich identities that are self-sovereign, uh, that are composable and reusable across a variety of applications like GM.xyz, I think presents an interesting opportunity that is, wasn't, isn't, available in the traditional web2 space. And that is, you know, when you go to Facebook or and you know, does Google Plus or Google Circles whatever they used to be called, social platforms still exist. Like when you went there, the discoverability of like-minded individuals is, you know, it, it, it's not really good. You know, because it isn't really comprehensive or uh, acknowledging kind of like the extend extension of your identity beyond maybe just a single platform. With Web3 identities like my own, for instance, if I have an ENS and if I have certain NFTs in that wallet, if I hold certain governance tokens of a DAO, if I've participated in governance in those DAOs, if I've supported public good funding um, through uh, platforms like Gitcoin, for instance, all of this really is building up a very rich identity of who I am, who I choose to represent myself as in Web3. It's interesting to consider how all of these different metrics or touch points in my Web3 identity could be used within a social application to then help with the discoverability of other like-minded individuals. Are you at gm.xyc kind of giving consideration to like how you can organize or recommend people to one another to organize amongst themselves uh, based on these like variables or metrics of their identity? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So right now, our focus has been mostly on kind of getting communities onboarded so that there's a ton of really awesome communities that you can join um, when you sign up for GM. Uh, so our focus is more on that now. And then, right, like once we have this critical mass of communities, our focus will probably toward, turn towards helping people, f helping funnel people into those communities, right? So you own um, a board ape NFT, right? Like you should join the Yuga Labs community and then you should follow these other 10 apes and connect with them and shoot them a DM. And then, um, uh, yeah, it really, um, that's our goal. And that's what we think it should look like because you have all exactly what you said. You have all, kind of like all this rich um, data that lives on the blockchain that not a lot of people are making use of right now. And you can do it in really interesting ways. Another interesting way too it, um, that we've been discussing internally is that you can um, kind of make your DMs <laughs> more open by not having to turn them off. And what I mean by that is like, if you think about, I don't know, somebody like Kevin Rose, right? Like who has a million followers on Twitter. He, I, I don't know, he, maybe his DMs are open. I don't know off the top of my head, but I imagine his DMs are very hard to go through. Um, but um, if you start bringing like tokens into uh, the equation, you could say like, hey, only proof holders um, or moonbirds can DM me, right? And there's a lot. So what, what it does is it allows him to kind of connect with his project holders. Um, and that's another uh, kind of selling point for communities too. You, right, like if you launch an NFT project, it's very opaque into who's actually holding your tokens, right? So, but if you go on GM, you could kind of like find those people and help like kind of um, bring them together into a community and like rally against um, your cause and your mission. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two things you touched on there, and I think both super incredible uh, feats when we do get the opportunity to kind of build or actually build our communities in that way. And one of them, you know, this idea of like ape follow ape, but in a much more Web3 native way, right? Where it's not like we have to do a hashtag and discover other people that are using that hashtag. And really, how do we, how can we verify ownership, right, on a Web2 platform? Well, maybe they, actually paid for Twitter Blue to be able to, you know, show that PFP and show the provenance of it. But, you know, on a Web3 native platform like GM.xyz, this all happens, you know, natively. This, this is just the way that it's, it's programmed. Um, the other thing that you were talking about just now is this whole interaction between uh, communities or individuals with shared values, right? This idea of like DMs that are restricted to just certain communities based on, you know, ownership of certain assets, right? It'd be even interesting to take it a step further and be like, I want to curate this community based on early adoption of this asset. I don't, you know, I, I sure, I, if you hold that asset today and you paid, you know, 15 ETH for it, well, great, I, you're still, I still want to hear from you. But there is a certain level of uh, reputation, if you will. If you came in early, if you believed in this project early and you joined, you know, when it was like 0.05 ETH or whatever, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to start seeing the uh, different opportunities when you segment communities in that way or when you curate communities in that way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I honestly think we're so early in what NFTs can be. Like if you think exactly what you said, right? Like even something like CryptoPucks, um, right? Like a lot of those people were super early and they're very cool people in crypto. Uh, but at the same time, the, the fact that anybody who has a hundred thousand dollars to spend, uh, can go out and buy one. Um, it feels somewhat suboptimal. And I actually had a tweet on this pretty recently of, uh, I bet that a lot of, uh, NFT projects, particularly like super high status ones will be kind of, you, you won't be able to buy them. 
they will be kind of right like a very curated list of people who it will be given to based on um uh right like your reputation within that community um and i actually think that's a more equitable way of going about it just because it's not it's no longer just capital based right it's kind of like the social capital element where if you um right like right if you build if you're a thoughtful writer or if you help out a lot in the community right you earn right like you could kind of earn this um these assets through right like because when you're talking about assets and you're kind of like only letting people connect with it there's like right now it's mostly just kind of money based right it's based on what you bought rather than what you've done and hopefully i think nfts will trend towards that and then it creates an even more uh uh like a richer surface area to kind of innovate on and honestly that so up until this point we've been more focused on kind of building a lot of table stakes uh kind of features that go into um it takes a lot to build a chat platform right like a, and like innovating on like design and we've been more focused with like allowing people to kind of the communication platform aspect of it but i'm really excited to start using these web3 primitives in really unique and interesting ways what are your thoughts in terms of you know the transition from web2 to web3 native applications in the social space uh, obviously you're building one and you're kind of staked to the success of web3 social what are we missing right now uh, just generally in terms of like adoption by not the small niche community that we are but outside of it yeah i mean honestly i think um a lot of things need to be abstracted away so right like people don't even realize what's going on behind the scenes where like a wallet setting whatever asset um and having to check ether scan to make sure it went through right like a lot of that just needs to be abstracting away and kind of like um the equivalent of using venmo rather than metamask to send um eth right um and i think that's honestly that's one of the reasons i'm most excited about web3 social like so kind of what we were talking about earlier if you think about right like defi um is super super important but it only appeals to a very small subset of the global population. Uh, NFTs definitely appeal to more people than DeFi, but still there's a lot of people who like don't quite get it, um, right? Or like they'll never really be interested in kind of buying um, like a monkey PFP, right? And they'll always be against it. Um, but honestly, social is something that kind of touches everybody in the world. And it could be a way, if done thoughtfully, to show people why kind of these Web3 primitives are extremely useful, right? Like what happens when everybody has essentially a bank account linked to Facebook, right? Where you could receive payments and you can connect based on like the assets you own um, or the things you've done, right? With Poaps, it's, it gets like, you can prove that you've actually done something. Um, and then you could take your identity to other places on the web. It's, it's really, really interesting. Um, and honestly, one of the things I'm most excited about with social, because it can really onboard the next billion users into Web3. I like how you frame that. You know, you really, I think, brought it together and uh, talked about the distance from maybe the average user, even in the Web2 space, even to these uh, types of interactions with finance, for instance, like in the population uh, of the world, what percentage is participating in TradFi, right? Not talking about owning a bank account, because even that, there is a small part of the population because there's a lot more that are unbanked, right? But the, even the ones that ha have bank accounts, how many of those are investing? How many of those are actively investing, not just put it into some sort of, you know, yield fund and hoping that it uh, gains enough interest over time? Uh, how many people are collecting art? 
How many people like going into the NFT narrative? How many people are collecting art? How many people are supporting their artists by going to their concerts and buying their music? But then going to the social aspect of it and seeing the growth, uh, a rapid growth of social spaces and how many people that use the internet are using social applications, right? It's quite a large swath of the population. So we start looking at different ways to engage communities who are interested in these applications in the traditional space and then carry that over uh, into the Web3 space by really powering it up using this decentralized technology. And I, I agree with you. I think, you know, firstly, we're social beings by nature. So, you know, really being able to like engage with other like-minded individuals, talking about our common interests, um, doing it over chat, doing it over video, you know, just all of these social uh, elements are hugely important to, I think, us as human beings uh, to then trend, uh, transcend that and actually uh, talk about social from an ownership perspective, from this more equitable perspective. I think that that's really interesting. And so I'm personally very much uh, interested and fascinated by the work that's being done in decentralized uh, social. Yeah, I, th I think you said it perfectly. And all of those things that you touched on, um, we're super excited about it as well. Yeah. So I guess can maybe to wrap it up, why don't you give us like the next 30 days, six months, one year for GM.xyz? What are you uh, hoping to achieve in the near future and, and you know, the long term? Um, yeah. So kind of in the near term, what we're really focused on is building a really great product. Because like I kind of said in the beginning, like you need to build a really great product to if you're actually going to serious, be serious about competing with Discord and um, like kind of these Web2 software platforms. So right now we're focused on building a great product. What we have is we have a wait list of communities looking to launch on GM and we onboard them and we're talking with them, learning about their problems. They're giving us lots of feedback um, and we're kind of iterating and making the product uh, it's honestly getting better every week. So if you follow, you can follow our weekly updates on GM and we're shipping new things. The products we're trying to, I, we have a goal of making the product five to 10% better every week. Um, so we're just shipping. There's still a lot of things that we need to build. Um, like voice, um, is one, um, people write like something like Twitter spaces or discourse stages is something that a lot of communities need. Um, we're actually innovating on, um, some things that discord doesn't do. Um, so if you think about one thing that I think that drives me nuts about Discord is you can't leave channels on Discord. So you can only mute them and then you can hide those muted channels, but still it's annoying. Um, it should be more like Slack in my view where you like join a community or a server and there's a few default channels that are applicable to everyone, right? Like, cause if you jump into a Discord server, all 70 channels are not relevant to you. There's probably like maybe like two or three um, in each community. And then um, what it also does by having opt-in channels is you can you can create actually more it allows you to create more channels because you don't have to worry about cluttering the channel namespace. So if if you're a thousand person community and like five people want to create a book club, you can create a channel for that book club without having to worry about like it bothering everybody else. People and then new people can find it and it allows for all these interesting changes in community structure. So we're honestly focused on you. So that's something that we plan on shipping, shipping in the next two weeks or so, which should be pretty exciting. But stuff like that and voice and really kind of building all these, this cool functionality um, is our focus now. So building a great product, then onboarding more communities, right? Like we want to get to a credit. Well, right now you have to kind of go through us and do this waitlist process just so that we could get 
have built like personal relationships with all these community managers and learn more about their problems. But then once we feel like we have a truly great product, we're going to open up the platform more. So we're going to allow um, anybody to just create a community and allow for kind of um, this, uh, um, right, like kind of like, right, like this serendipitous <laughs> uh, community creation is, um, and then once you have this critical mass of communities, then you can start building kind of more of those broadcast use cases is, um, and then as we're doing that, we want to start um, hopefully in the next year or so, um, productionizing our APIs and getting more serious about decentralizing the data layer once the product isn't changing as much. So right now the product's changing literally every day. We're shipping code every day. And it'd be a nightmare if we had to like kind of migrate our data models on decentralized architecture. It's really, really hard. And like, I don't even know how to build voice in a decentralized way. Um, but our hope is that like kind of this decentralized architecture will also be, if I had a bet, like decentralized architecture, right? Like there's a lot of really brilliant people building really awesome things like ceramic and, and tools like, and are we even, um, Filecoin, um, uh, they're building all these interesting things. Um, and, um, our hope is that like, they will be much better even 12 months from now, right? Like, so that's another advantage of focusing on the product first is that, um, best practices for decentralizing your data layer are probably going to look dramatically different in the next six months, let alone 12 to 24 months. So that's another ad advantage of focusing product first. Um, and then hopefully we can contribute to that too. Once like we're not iterating on the product as much, we can start decentralizing the data layer. And then after that, decentralizing the governance layer. All right, that's amazing. So the last question that I normally ask is, you know, this could be someone on crypto Twitter, this could have been someone that you read a book from, but who has been the most influential in your crypto journey? Um, hmm, tough question. Um, I would say um, a lot of Blasi's ideas um, I, I found really interesting, particularly his ideas around social. Like, I, I don't have that many original ideas. I like like steal a lot from really smart people like Blasi. So, um, right, I, I would probably say like read Blasi's book, The Network Stake. State, he's like talking about really, really interesting ideas. So, um, and he kind of imagines like his imagination is just kind of wild in terms of like what he's <laughs> uh, thinking about. So, I, I'd probably say Balaji's probably impacted my views on crypto the most. Okay, that's wonderful. So, well, I'm trying to get uh, a number of people's recommendations, and this also helps us to be able to reach out to different individuals to come on the show. So, thank you for that. Uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Uh, love to learn both about you uh, and about GM.xyz. Didn't know this was a family venture. I think that's really, <laughs> that's really rad. I I think that my that's brother is right over there. He's coding right now. There he is. All he's, right. uh, <laughs> he's locked in. Yeah, definitely. So this is yeah, this has been really wonderful. Um, I look forward to being being able to continue chatting about what you're building and maybe even seeing if there's additional ways that we can collaborate in the future too. So thank you for your time. That sounds great. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for sticking all the way to the end with us. If you'd like to learn more about Michael and GM.xyz, you can find them on Twitter. Michael at MikeMCG0 and GM.xyz at GM.xyz. Please don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. It truly means a lot to us. And give us a five-star review too. That helps extend the reach of this content and connect to more people like you. 
And if you enjoyed this conversation, you can check out our archive at cryptosapiens.xyz. Until next time, stay brainy. Thank you.